Let's begin and open our Bibles tonight to John chapter 4. Something I was reading a couple days ago, and as I told you, this series is is dynamic. It's changing as we go through it a little bit. You'll see a couple changes, not big changes, on the diagram that we have here on the board. But it's been an exciting journey for me, and we are now in Lesson 8 of our 12 lessons. So let's look at John chapter 4, and you know these stories well. The, the first major story is, if we look at, start with verse 3 of John chapter 4, Jesus says that he left Judea and went again into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. Interesting. He had to pass through Samaria. Lots of great notes on this verse. Providentially, perhaps he knew by the Father leading, but he was led to Samaria. Now, he meets the woman at the well, and and we know that story. We're not going to really go through that part of the story. Let's pick it up. Down at verse 25 of chapter 4. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. In verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Then what happens next? The disciples show up. Let's see what's on their mind right now. Scriptures tell us. Verse 27, at this point his disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek, or why do you speak with her? Interesting. So what are they thinking about? You'd think they might be curious. Oh, we came by Samaria. You're talking to this woman at the well at middle of the day. What's she doing there? And what was your conversation about? And And what happened with your conversation? No, no, none of that. We have another couple verses, verses 28 through 30 about the woman, and we pick up the disciples again at verse 31. Now we see what they're talking about, what they're interested in. Verse 31, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. So what was on their mind? Suke. That's exactly right, Rob. They were thinking about his physical well-being. You need to eat, Rabbi. Now, what was going on? We know what was going on from the story. She was being saved. Many were being saved. It goes on, if you read down in verse 34, Jesus redirects them. We see that all the time. The disciples. Horizontal issues. And our Lord redirecting them to vertical. He says in verse 34, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And we go on to see what his work is going to accomplish in verse 39. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified He told me all the things that I've done. And we see that in verses 40 and 41. Many more believed. Spiritual results as a result of Zoe preoccupation. 
Now, why do I mention this? That's us, isn't it? I mean, we've been talking about that we are in this tension between life under the sun, suke, things that preoccupy us that are understandable. It's okay to eat, right? It's okay to be hungry. It's okay to sleep. I mean, suke is not bad. It's just that we're pulled that way naturally, just like the disciples. And we're pulled between that and this life in the sun. And the tension between these two, we're trying to take this tension and look at it on an issue that's more narrow, an issue involving this counseling world and who we call and and why we call counselors or certain get involved in certain programs rather than calling one another. And so we have this tension between the one anothering world where we have life, light, and Zoe that we've talked about in this life under the sun, this tent, temporal tent we live in, and, and the professions, professionals that we call on. We're trying to understand that. We're trying to understand it because pain and difficulties are real, aren't they? I mean, trials are hard. Suffering is part of our lives. And we're looking for answers. We're looking for help. Now, I have put on the board, great diagram. Aren't you impressed? So, what do I have up here? For those of you who are new, what we're unfolding in the class are five foundation beliefs. And we're on belief three. We're building this path. The first three in brief are life in Christ, light and sight in Christ. And we we know we have more words around what that means. And then we're here on how we view pain in Christ. This is where we are right now. And in the process of doing this, we're building some identifying some stepping stones. Remember we talked about that earlier? Kind of look at what are what are some of the smaller thoughts that connect the bigger thoughts? What are the key issues? And so, as we talked about life in Christ, we said early on that the biblical gospel was important. Now, what gospel competes against that as it relates to the counseling world? Anybody remember? What's our competitor because there's lots of Gospels that are false. But as it relates to this counseling issue we're addressing, remember the name of the alternative? It's the sister of the prosperity Gospel. Yeah, therapeutic Gospel. So the therapeutic Gospel is sort of that alternative. Anybody remember what it means as opposed to the prosperity Gospel? That's more prosperity. Health and wealth is prosperity. Therapeutic is God wants you to be... Say it, Gail. Thank you. God wants you to be happy. Yeah, that's okay. I mean, we all want to be happy. There's nothing wrong with being happy. The the problem is when that's our focus and our emphasis. And, And really, the Christian life is more about being holy than being circumstantially happy. Now, the biblical gospel is is about new life. It's about what we would call resurrection life. 
because that's the term, really, that's what Zoe means, isn't it? Resurrection life. New life. It's, we have new DNA now. We're alive in Christ because we were dead. And when the gospel's preached right, sin is preached right, it starts with we're dead. And we need to be alive. Life and sight, the two sort of building blocks, were revelation. That's, excuse me, not life and sight. I should do that right. Somebody should have seen that. Light and sight. So that must have been when, when Paul or Hampton interrupted me, I think, when I was working hard on my diagram. But light is, is that revelation. Okay. General revelation or special revelation. We've talked a lot about those. And sight is illumination by the Holy Spirit. Now, what gives us life? What gives us resurrection life? What gives us Zoe? We get it from revelation, don't we? We get, we get resurrection life from this. And so that's how those two are connected. And, and so it, this is revealed to us. It, we don't earn it. We're not saved because we're smart. We're not saved because of our academics. We're not saved because of our will. We're not saved because we've been to school. We go to church. We're saved by what? Faith, of course. And our third point has to do with how we view pain in Christ. And this is where we are currently in our study. So let me just read this to you again. A Christian understands and interprets pain differently in Christ. Generally, we source both pain and remedy from a life under the sun horizontal suke perspective. However, as we are his children, no pain is allowed without the awareness of our Father. Invariably, the Holy Spirit drives our eyes and attention to Christ Jesus in the vertical so that we experience a better outcome, the nearness of God. So, we're started to look at this issue of pain and suffering. And we've spent some time on that a few weeks ago. And this was one of the verses that we focused on from Romans 5, verses 2 through 5. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So that first point I, I call the purpose of pain. Pain has a purpose. It has a value. For Al, he's going to be three to six months in pain and recovering from a broken back. But it has a purpose for him. It'll have value to him. And he doesn't know all of that yet, but he trusts by faith in God that that is is the case. 
tonight, we're going to take down another point here. We're going to look at another key thought to help us understand pain and suffering a little bit more. But we've also started our discussion of the counseling world. And we did this last week, didn't we? Because all of these things sort of touch on this. And so last week, or that's not really correct, is it? Two weeks ago. We got into this issue, truth. This was the big question. For those of you, I won't go through all the slides. I've just got three or four quickly, and you remember those. You were here. But we had this question, all truth is God's truth, because the issue of what is truth as it relates to the counseling world is critical. And we have said that there's two big counseling groups. There's Christian counseling group, which are integrationist. What's an integrationist? Well, that's these guys, like Denver Seminary, like Dallas Seminary, the counseling departments at these seminaries, okay? They talk about additional truth. And so we said we need to define what we mean by truth. So we looked at biblical definition of, of truth and how that word truth is secularized. Even on the tower at my beloved University of Texas, all truth is God's truth. You shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free from John 8.32. It just sort of leaves out John 8.31. If you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. Then you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. They're talking about a different truth here, aren't they? Freedom, you know, truth that will free you from ignorance. Truth that will free you from bigotry. Truth that will free you from a variety of things. But not spiritual. Yes. Narrow-mindedness. Yes. Thank you, Robert. And when we said that this, and we said that this idea of truth as it touches the integrationist, that they're going to take this idea of truth and, and roll it into general revelation. Well, God's given us minds. He's given us the world to study the world. He certainly wants us to study. Absolutely true. In fact, uh, Paul asked a great question beforehand tonight. He said, what about the whole idea of subduing the earth and the fact that we're supposed to do that and that God's given us a command to use our, you know, use all that He's given us in His image, and that's exactly right. I, and what I was calling for as we looked at this issue was a much more narrow definition of general revelation, because the integrationists want to roll in their truth of studies and knowledge from psychology and behavioral models, and roll that into general revelation to give it some equal bearing. Now, there's some other reasons why that, and we'll talk about that. There's another point here that we'll get to next week, another big issue in the integrationist world, because next week we're going to get into this a lot more. We'll finish this out, in fact. But a narrower view of general revelation, which we said was it's from God, it's all-inclusive, it's broad in its information about God, but it only reveals about God, that that science and psychology isn't, it can't be included. These are different types of truth. 
nothing wrong with this truth. It, it, but it's truth with quotes. It's secular truth. It's two plus two is truth, validated. The world is round, finally became validated. And, and there's a lot of, there's great value in science and studies. We just don't want to get it confused with revelation. Now, is that, I know that was, I had several good comments after class. Any questions on that? Because this is, I mean, it'd be good to go back and listen to it again. I mean, I finished by saying a better statement instead of all truth is God's truth would be all biblical truth is revealed in God and in his word. And then we said, okay, well, how do we engage with people who are struggling with this? And this model, with some tweaks, will still, it's not meant to be a process, but these an approach. People have said, well, how do we do it, Jim? Well, we understand we're all tugged toward the horizontal, and we need to clarify our language. Boy, do we need to do that. We're going to see that even more here. Clarify our language. We need to ask those questions. What do you mean by truth? What do you mean by the word counsel? What do you mean by the word depression? We're going to have to step back and say, what are these words? What do they mean? And what does Scripture say about them? And examine them. And not just assume that they're being used in a biblical way. And certainly, we pray and trust the Spirit to lead. So any questions on last week that was maybe confusing? So you see where we're going? We're going to finish this out next week. And then weeks nine or weeks ten, eleven, and twelve, we're we're going to, as we have these these points in view, and we have a little bit more understanding of the counseling world, we're going to go into viewpoints four and five. So I know we got started late tonight, but this is important. So if what is truth is a good question to ask, which it is, I think. Tonight, let's ask another question. What role does pain play to identify a solution or an answer? How do social scientists, psychologists, and scientists in general define pain? And how different is this from Scripture's representation? How different and how should this weigh in who we call? What would you say, how do you think pain is defined by the world? Al knows when you break your back, physical pain. That's pain. But let's talk about other types of pain and suffering, difficulties. What do you think? I think it's a broken relationship. Broken relationship, sure. That's painful spiritually or emotionally. And it's personal. Financial problems, that's painful. Yes, exactly. Look at, this was a definition. You'll see, each of you hit on one. You'll see, this came from a good secular definition, the way the world looks at pain. Psychological pain may best be defined as a lasting, unsustainable, and unpleasant feeling resulting from negative appraisal of an inability or deficiency of the self. This negative self-appraisal is typically brought on by loss of someone or something or failure to achieve something. 
that is intimately linked to core psychological needs. That is a good, general, worldly, secular view of pain. So how does God define pain? What's God's view of pain? I think that's good. A useful instrument. Very good. Did you think about my question too? Remember my question email? What is God's prescription for glory? Here we go. This is this prescription for my father-in-law. I promised him. Of course, I know you can't read it because it's doctor's writing. Okay. But it also, Steve and I felt like it would be, I'll blame Steve. She's here. We started very late tonight, just in case you're worried. Um, it'll look better up front in the PowerPoint. But let me read this to you. Prescription for my beloved children from I am your father. The ailment, glorification effort needed. Spot on with what Rob said. Treatment. Trials, tribulations, sufferings, affliction, pain, worldly loss, and often of an incomprehensible nature. Dosage, as often as needed, and to be followed by my redemptive plan for the explicit purpose to be made in my likeness, to keep me from the pit and equip me for every good work. Do you see how this right there might be slightly different from this? Maybe, maybe not. Well, that's where we're going to go tonight. What we're saying is that pain and suffering and trials are more than just of value. They're more than just useful. They are God's medicine for glory. They are his prescription for glory. And that's different. And frankly, I think we're going to see that that's comfortable. So, to, to look at this second point, why don't we look at some, I've got a good idea, how about some special revelation? Let's look at a perfect counseling scenario, shall we? Bad self-image, loss of self-esteem, marital conflict and brokenness, grief therapy, loss of life, thoughts of suicide, severe clinical depression, anxiety disorder. Those are all good worldly terms, I think. And they all describe our good friend here. You know him as? Anybody? Nobody read my emails, do you? I just, it just, I know you're not on the list. You're excused, Al. Well, how about Job? So, actually, we're not going to do that. You know, Calvin never wrote a commentary on Job, but over six months of time during his life, he he did what 150 some sermons on it, Steve, something like that. Something, 187th sermon. So first of all, we're going to look at Job chapter 1. Let's just look at the first, you all know the story of Job. 
So I don't need to read through all of it. What we're trying to do with Job is to catch enough of the highlights as it relates to the point we want to make with pain and suffering as it relates to this issue. So I hope I can do that because I'm not doing justice to the book of Job at all with all of its wonderful messages for us. So let's start with verse 1 of Job. And I'm going to read, just for the sake of time tonight, I'll read the verses. I'm going to read verses 1 through 22. That's a lot. Actually, I'm not going to read all of that because of time, but I'm going to start. I'll skip through down to verse 22. Verse 1, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. And then we have a description of his family and what they used to do down to verse 6. Now, verse 6, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about the earth and walking around on it. Verse 8, the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Verse 9, Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? And so, God goes and allows him to do what? To attack his family. Correct? I mean, he allows him basically to, in psychological terms, his environment. Or in the nature and nurture world, it's the nurturing world. That's what happens. We get down to verse 22 through all of this. Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Well, look at verse 8 for a minute with me. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Now, all of what's going on in chapter 1, this, this conversation, I mean, Job doesn't have access to this, does he? Chapters 1 and 2, he knows about it now, but not then, nor do his friends. What can we learn from verse 8? What is, what's going on here? Conversation, right, between Satan and God. So there is there's something going on that's not about Job, right? There's something bigger going on here that's part of a redemptive plan that we don't know yet. About Job, about uh, Satan and God. Something is happening. What else do we know? We know from this that whatever Job's gone through and will go through doesn't have anything directly to do with what he has sowed. This is not a sowing and reaping issue for Job. That's critical. That's why It says he's upright and blameless and righteous. We know he's not perfect. We know he's not righteous in the sense that he's perfect. 
But God in his word wanted us to know that what's happening to Job here has nothing to do with sowing and reaping. Now, is sowing and reaping a biblical truth? Sure. Is it all the story? No. That's the key thing that we're going to learn here. It's not all the story. So let's go on. Let's look at chapter 2, shall we? What's going to happen in chapter 2? If if in chapter 1 he's attacking his environment, the nurture, what what gets attacked in chapter 2? His flesh, isn't it? His very nature. And particularly, start at verse 1, And again there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. And then verse 3, The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on earth. And again, he repeats his compliments of Job. But we go on and we see the results of chapter 2 are terrible for Job. Now, does everybody respond by faith in this chapter? Does Job's wife respond the same way Job does? No. And we see Job's faith right now is pretty strong, isn't it? He's, he's not blaming God. What's interesting is that even though, as we see in, in verse 3 of, of chapter 2, that even though God does not actively do anything specifically against Job, Satan did have to ask permission, didn't he? So God knew what was happening. He was certainly allowing it. And he also, if you notice in verse 3, it said that... Um, a blameless and upright man, and he still holds fast his integrity, although you, Satan, incited me against him to ruin him without cause. Now, isn't that interesting? He doesn't back away from his sovereign control over everything, even though Satan is involved. Now, this is mysterious. Talk a little bit in a minute. I'm not going to get into great details about the origin of evil tonight. But there's a tension going on here. And we need to understand it to understand this. Well, we go down. We could we can skip. We, we heard a man named Derek Thomas speak on Job down at Park City's Prez. And, and he said that when we get to chapter 3, nobody that he knows has memorized Job chapter 3. Because in chapter 3, Job, his faith is starting to weaken. He wishes he'd never been born. Never been in his mother's womb, that would have been better. I mean, Job chapter 3 is like Psalm 88. Nobody memorizes Psalm 88 either. It doesn't have a good ending. These are dark passages. And yet, we have something that's introduced in Job chapter 3 that will show up later. So if you look in Job chapter 3, verse 11, or is it verse 11? I think, no, verse 8. Let those who curse it curse the day who are prepared to rouse Leviathan. 
Now, what is Leviathan? Don't answer that. Keep your mind there. We'll come back to that. So he goes on. The next 30-some chapters, we have the four friends. The three friends plus Elihu. Now, who is Elihu? I'm not sure. And tonight, we won't get into that. But what Derek Thomas said, pretty much, is that the next 30-some chapters of the three friends is the same song, different verse. And what's the song? God is righteous. God is just. Therefore, he must, he must treat sin in a, in a way that's consistent with his righteousness. He must punish it. Therefore, Job, somehow, even though you don't know it, you must have sinned. You are reaping what you sowed. That is consistent with God's nature. And over and over, in all kinds of ways, that's the message to Job. Is that true? Do you reap what you sow? It's partially true. It's a biblical truth. It's just not the whole truth. And once again, that's what's being told to Job. And then we get to, finally, in verse 40. Chapter 40, I mean. Let's turn quickly to chapter 40. And now we have... An interesting thing. I was in Psalm 40. That's no good. The Lord speaks. Then the Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken, and I will not answer, even twice, and I will add nothing more. We see here what's happened with Job is complaining and grumbling and questioning why God has ended. And he's shut up. He's humbled to the point of being silent before God. You know what's good about that for all of us? Because we all need that over and over. Is that when we're shut up, we stop boasting in ourselves. You know that? And when we stop boasting in ourselves, who do we boast in? Christ. It's a great process for us to shut up, stop boasting in ourselves, so that we can boast in Christ. And that's what's happened to Job at this point. He's at a good spot here. But our Lord wants to reinforce it, so he goes on. And he, and I wish I could, I haven't studied these. It'd be wonderful to study all these. Were you there? Were you there? Were you there? Great view of the greatness of God. But in the midst of this, we see a couple more people. You look at Job chapter 40 as he continues And we go down to verse 15. Behold now, Behemoth, which I made as well as you, he eats grass like an ox. Behold now his strength in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. And he talks about Behemoth. But then he goes on and on. Verse chapter 41, verse 1. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? He goes on about Leviathan. 
Of course, he goes on with many other things. In chapter 42, we see Job truly repenting. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear now and I will speak. I will ask you and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Now he has sight. My eyes see you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. So, as we talk about the issues tonight and try to zero in here, what does Job's experience do for us? What's the value of it? We see this a little bit. In Elihu's words. And it's interesting. A lot of discussion. We talked about it earlier this week about Elihu. Who is he? We'll notice at the end of Job in chapter 42, the three friends are criticized, but not Elihu. And we don't know much about him other than that. But we can look here and and see what Elihu said in chapter 33. And see if this doesn't resonate as being true. And consistent with what we know from the overall story of Job. Why do you complain against him that he does not give an account of all his doings? Indeed, God speaks once or twice, yet no one notices it. In a dream, a vision of the night when sound sleep falls on men while they slumber in their beds, then he opens the ears of men that he may turn man aside from his conduct and keep man from pride. He keeps back his soul from the pit and his life from passing over into Sheol. That's why I had in our prescription earlier on that God would prescribe suffering and trials to keep our soul from the pit as well as to equip us to every good work. So what what do we know? Isn't that true that God does things that we don't understand? That he is so transcendent that we don't even notice all that he... We we hardly notice anything that he does unless it impacts us personally. He's involved when we're sleeping. He's at work. He's doing good things for us. He's opening the ears of men to hear him, he's turning man aside from his conduct. He's involved with helping men walk better. He's keeping us from pride so our spiritual life could be better. He's keeping us out of the pit so we don't go to hell. God is involved in doing everything for us. He is independent, transcendent. And we are, what, totally dependent and totally finite. Now, to help reinforce it, I think that's why he talks about Leviathan and Behemoth. And I, we got this from hearing Derek Thomas speak, and Steve and I and Bob and some others have been talking about this. And it made sense to me. Because 
In fact, I was a little frustrated with Dr. Thomas because he took about 10 or 15 minutes unfolding all the different interpretations of who Behemoth is and who Leviathan is. And you may have studied it in college, Bill. I don't, I mean, at seminary. I don't know. Do you know who they are? No. I mean, there's all kinds of descriptions of who these special creatures are. Mythical. Mystical. Names for other creatures, like there are different names for a crocodile. Or an elephant. Or a dinosaur. But the point is, does it really matter? Really? I mean, does it matter that God would create an ugly, and when you read about Leviathan and Behemoth, they're not necessarily puppy dogs, okay? I mean, do you ever wonder why God created a crocodile? I mean, think about it. Now, of course, they're fallen crocodiles. I mean, maybe they were nice crocodiles in the garden. That was brought up by Karen one time. Karen said, and she's not here tonight because she's watching our grandchild, and so, you know, give her some kudos instead of picking on her. You all tell her that. But she said, Jim, I mean, isn't it possible that crocodiles were good animals in the garden? Okay, I'll give you that. But they're still kind of ugly. I mean, I mean, why? The point is, he's transcendent. We don't need to know why. There's something else going on that's bigger and grander. That The unfolding of God's sovereignty, what's a good word for what it means as sovereignty plays out? The activities of sovereignty. Another good P word. Providence. His providence. There's things going on in his providence, in his redemptive plan, that we don't get. But it's not just that. In his providence, in his redemptive plan, isn't it all working for good? Isn't it all consistent with his nature? Isn't everything that happens whether we understand fully the nature of evil and discuss that, don't we have to say that God is there? He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. He's um, omnipresent. He is totally in control of everything. And even though it's true that out of him no evil directly can come, There are some scriptures that talk about him causing evil, causing calamity. There's one right here at the end of Job. We see it in, what is it, verse, uh, no, it's not in Job, well, it is. Verse 11, then all his brothers, chapter 42, then all his brothers and all his sisters and all who had known him before they came to him, before came to him and they ate bread with him in his house and they consoled him and comforted him for all the adversities or evil, other translations, that the Lord had brought on him. Now wait, I I thought Satan did all this to Job. No, the Lord did it. Because, Because he has a plan that's bigger than what we understand and it's all good. Now, that's comforting in the midst of trials and difficulties that we don't understand. 
it's comforting to know that it not only has a purpose for us in terms of, of transforming us to be more like Christ, to be more dependent, but it, but it did a bigger purpose. We're talking about Job today. Job's in heaven enjoying the Lord. Yes, Joy. Isn't what? Yes, yes, amen. In the midst of all of this, in the midst of all of this, Job is being transformed to be more like Christ. And therefore, he is glorifying God. It's exactly right. There's value. Our, the value of transforming us to be more like Christ, to drawing near, is that we glorify the Father because he now sees Christ in us more and more. And that brings him glory. Yeah. Yes. No, 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 that's, that's exactly. And so, so, so what is the issue then for Job? Why, why, why was he in chapters one and two responding well and then started to weaken? What was the struggle for Job? He what now? Well, yes, he was listening to peer pressure. But, but before that even, when he was stronger in chapters 1 and 2, and then he started to weaken in chapter 3 as it went on throughout the book, what was the struggle for Job? Was it, was it a behavioral struggle? No. The struggle for Job was a faith struggle. That's what he was struggling with. His faith got weak. And see, that's when we talk about here that we're saved by faith, the struggle, the message for us and the trial for us, the struggle for us as believers, when these trials and difficulties hit, it, it shakes our faith. And the things that we believe about God are challenged. And as Steve said, we, we might believe, I mean, we're all good Sunday Christians. I mean, we, we go to church, we, 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 we study good theology. We are blessed in a place like Community Bible and other churches where we understand these things. But then we lose a child. Steve's lost a child. I lost a wife. Many of you have lost dear. I mean, you. These these are real painful situations in it. And and we have with Job just a horrible situation when you look at it. And Job's faith was strong early on because he was a good man who walked before the Lord and. And it just weakened. And he and people came alongside Job that did not bolster his faith. We have that opportunity in the body of Christ to not be like his friends. To, 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 to understand the bigger issues and to bring people to Christ. Closer to encourage one another in our struggle with faith. Because that's what our struggle is. Now, that's interesting when we think about what most of the issues that are involved in counseling are. They're typically behavioral issues. People don't go see a counselor because they're weak in their faith. I need to go see a counselor because I want to grow stronger as a Christian. And I, and I need to know more of the Word. And I, I, I'm struggling with Romans, you know. And I just, I, I don't understand God's sovereignty more. No, they don't go to a counselor for that. It's because of some horizontal issue. But when... But when the world collapses, what do they need? They need faith. 
And they be strengthened in faith. And who brings that to them? We do. One another. We do. We're more than equipped to do it. Well, we have, based on the fact we started 10 minutes late, we have a few more minutes. So, besides Job, let's look at a couple other people that are good examples of those who, by faith, who understood trials and tribulations well. Because Job got it. He got Romans 5 now. He understands Romans 5, doesn't he? Well, how about David Livingston? Most of you have heard of him. Now, it is spelled right. We went through a little change later in the day today because I thought it was T-O-N. It's pronounced Livingston. We know that it's pronounced that way because, you know, his meeting with Stanley in whatever, 1871, he said, uh, what was it, um, Dr. Livingston, I presume. He didn't say Dr. Livingstone. We've never heard that. But that's how you pronounce, spell his name. He was 19th century pioneer medical missionary to Africa. Everybody knows pretty much the story of Dr. David Livingston. On his death in 1873, a worn copy of one of Charles Spurgeon's printed sermons, Accidents, Not Punishments, was found among Livingston's few possessions. At the top of the first page, Livingston had written very good and initialed it, David Livingston, D.L. The missionary had carried it with him throughout his travels in Africa. Livingston was so overwhelmed and impressed with Spurgeon's views on this issue. In that sermon title, it's a wonderful sermon. I can send it to you. You can find it on the Spurgeon treasury. I've got a copy of it tonight. But by the sermon, Spurgeon wasn't talking about accidents like they were not sovereign. He wrote this sermon. He gave this sermon right after a tunnel had collapsed in London that killed Lots of people. And the whole sermon was about the fact that accidents fall on the just and the unjust. And they have nothing to do with sin of a person. That when a plane crashes, we're not to step back and say, well, everybody on that plane must have been sinners because I wasn't on that plane. God is judging that plane for sin. That's not it. Spurgeon wrote this sermon and gave this sermon to say that that this isn't that this is part of God's providential redemptive plan that we don't understand, and that encouraged Livingston through amazing suffering and difficulties that he went through, and persecutions that he went through. And what was Spurgeon's view of pain and suffering? Well, this is very little, but look at a couple of quotes from Spurgeon. Spurgeon found that great suffering drew him closer to God. The first quote, I dare say the greatest earthly blessing that God can give to any of us is health, with the exception of sickness. Second quote, I'm afraid that all the grace I have got of my comfortable and easy times and happy hours might almost lie on a penny. But, The good I've received from my sorrows and pains and griefs is altogether 
incalculable. And number three, affliction is the best bit of furniture in my house. It is the best book in my library. Before I read these verses, let me read just a little bit out, just a couple uh, paragraphs out of Johnny Erickson Tata. Those of you who know Johnny know she quadriplegic at age 17 and has written wonderfully on pain and suffering. There's very few people that have written so richly and theologically well on the issue of pain and suffering than Johnny. She says here, the title of the subsection is The Greater the Suffering, to Joy's point, The Greater the Glory. There is a direct relationship between earth's suffering and heaven's glory. I'm not glorifying suffering here. There's no inherent goodness in Lisa. This is a lady she was talking about, like her. Lisa's spinal cord injury. There's nothing applaudable about the agony. Problems are real. And I'm not denying that suffering hurts. I'm just denying that it matters in the grander scheme of things. It is light and momentary compared with what our response is producing for us in heaven. Yes, suffering is pivotal to future glory. Let me explain. The greatest suffering that ever occurred happened on the cross. And the greatest glory ever given in response to suffering was the glory ascribed to Christ when he ascended. He suffered death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. Philippians 2, 8 and 9. There is a direct correspondence between suffering and glory. Does this mean, I'll skip down, that those who suffer greatly yet nobly will have a bigger halo, a shinier face? No. But it does mean that they will enjoy a greater capacity to serve God in heaven. Those who suffer beyond comparison will, if they honor Christ with an uncomplaining spirit, be glorified beyond all comparison. I'm sure there will be times when Lisa will smirk like I did as she reads Romans 8.18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Last couple sentences. Like me, she will go through cycles thinking, Is the Bible being flippant about my lot in life? But as long as she keeps focused on the basics, being still and knowing God through prayer and scripture, she will remain on the high road home. She will be more devoted to the future than the present, more devoted to the spiritual than the physical, and more devoted to eternal realities than temporal ones. Scripture gives us a lot of verses that reinforce this. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Remember the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you. But he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. The Lord said, Simon, Simon, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. Lots of activity going on, aren't there, still between Satan and God. 
Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So what's our battle? Our battle is a battle of faith, isn't it? It's what we need to pray for, encourage one another with, to believe these truths. And as we look at pain and suffering, which is real, and as we think about who we call and whether we should call a counselor and for what reasons and whether we should call on one another and why, we need to think differently about God. We need to think vertically. We need to think biblically right about God. We need to start there because we typically just don't. We just don't start there. It's not that we don't give it enough attention. Most often we don't give it any attention. We're so focused on the horizontal and a right view of God, a biblical view of God, a high view of his transcendent providential goodness and sovereign glory is the right foundation to start with when we encounter these trials. And it's the right foundation to start with as we minister to one another. Let's pray. Father, we each need more faith. We acknowledge that, a stronger faith. And those of us, Father, who are having things going well for us, Father, we must stop and consider why that is. Certainly give you praise for it. But if your prescription for glory is the road of pain and suffering and trials, could it be that we have yielded to the comforts of this world? Could it be that we are cozy and safe and secure in our homes and in our hobbies and in the affections of this world that we are not even fighting against sin? Could it be, Father, that that we need to cry out for more trials, that we might know you more, that you might give us those difficulties, that we might fight against the affection of this world so that we might be more effective, that we might bring you more glory, that we might be more engaged in ministry to others, that we might be more engaged in the progress of your gospel. So, Father, we just commit to you our weakness and our dependence. We ask you to use us and to bring into our lives what you need to, to use us for your glory and give us the faith to believe that all that you give us, good and bad, is from your benevolent and providential good hand. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.